Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we've been telling Kentucky stories for 45 years. Here is your host, Bill Goodman. The issues of immigration, social inequality, gender stereotypes are very much in the news today. We will be hearing a lot more about them during a number of upcoming election cycles. Politicians and pundits alike will go to great lengths attempting to convince you that they are on the right side of these matters. Have you stopped to think when a small child overhears a discussion of blackface on the news? Or in this land of plenty where economic indicators and low unemployment numbers still put the homeless on street corners asking for money, what emotional reaction does that create in children? My guest today on Think Humanities is Dr. Christia Spears-Brown, professor of psychology at the University of Kentucky and director of the Center for Equality and Social Justice. And we'll discuss those matters with her and more. And welcome to our Think Humanities podcast. Thanks for having me. Tell me about your work. Well, I'm a developmental psychologist. So what I'm really interested in is how kids develop and how the social world they live in affects them. So what I look at is how kids develop stereotypes about race and gender. We know they develop stereotypes really, really early and in really complex ways. So I'm interested in that. With our goal being we want to reduce stereotypes, we've got to better understand how we develop them. And I'm also interested in the flip side of that equation is not only how do we develop stereotypes and what are we paying attention to, but what are the effects of living in a stereotyped group? So what's it like when you're discriminated against and how does that affect your academic outcomes and your psychological health and social relationships? And so we look at work from elementary school kids and middle school kids and high school kids, um, looking at how they're thinking about others and inequality and how the inequality that exists is affecting them. Is this um, period in our history, uh, whether it uh, is over several decades or maybe even longer than that, is this more difficult to either study and research that today than it ever has been before? Or is that just one of those generalities that uh, maybe lay people would make about the work that you do? I think that in many ways, this is a really interesting time to be studying these issues because there's so much changing rapidly right now. We're in the middle of a lot of cultural changes. And so kids are really attentive to the things that are around them. And also because of the role of media, for example, so even media on smartphones and the kind of constant inundation with um, issues about the world, it means that there's a lot more information coming into kids that they're having to navigate. So they're having to think about immigration for example, you know, the wall. And so we've done research looking at kids' understanding of what's it mean to build a wall to block one country out of another country. And that was not a conversation we would have had 50 years ago if we were doing this research because it wasn't um, this kind of global society that we live in now where there's constant news feeds in our ears. So even kids are paying attention to that and having to figure out what does that mean given a limited understanding and limited cognitive development, how do we understand these really complicated 
um, stereotypes we have about people and the policies that we enact to enforce certain behaviors. And so I think that's a really special time about studying it now that I think 50 years ago, we kind of lived in much smaller worlds, right? Kids really knew the kids that were at their school and the kids in their neighborhood. And that's really what kids' entire social world was. And now it's really anything that they can see on a handheld device that they carry with them all of the time. So social media, uh, whether it's on a handheld device or, or elsewhere, uh, that they're either sharing or reading or tweeting or using Snapchat or whatever, it's a, that's another outlet for them. Is it a, is it a, is it necessarily negative to them? Uh, how, how do you associate with what we didn't have 10 years ago with what we have today? I think it's just more of, more of an opportunity for messages to come in. So I don't think it's anything inherently good or bad. It's just more and more information that we're inundated with. So 50 years ago, you might sit down together and watch the evening news or listen to a radio show. Now it's really constant. So I think that's really all that it kind of modern technology is. It's just a more constant stream of information that kids are having to then navigate. And so it's not just on devices, but it's also a, you know, kids are really aware of the politics of the day. Um, And I think some of it's related to the conversations parents are having, but some of it just seems to be snippets of information they're picking up from around them and I don't know that that's always been the way it's you know the way society's been structured so it's important to have these conversations with children and when we talk about children I'm sure you're you're probably talking about all ages Mm -hmm. from from elementary all the way up through middle school and beyond I, I don't know what your what is your um your your scientific uh method of describing what it a child's age is? Well, so we look at children really from early childhood through adolescence, depending on the issue that we're studying. So when I do research looking at how children develop stereotypes about racial groups, so we've done research looking at how children form stereotypes about Muslims, for example, and the stereotypes that we have that are Islamophobic. Um, We look at stereotypes that kids hold about immigrants and based on where those immigrants come from. And those, when we have those kinds of research studies, we were looking at elementary school kids. So we know that kids are developing these types of stereotypes by the time they're five, six, seven, eight years old. We also do a lot of research looking at issues about sexual harassment. Um, And that really targets middle school and high school kids because we know sexual harassment is really common. And so we're looking at how there are stereotypes about um, how boys and girls should interact and the sexual objectification that goes on. Those issues we look more at the kind of 12, 13, 14, 15 year olds. So it's really the different issues that are are at play at different ages. When when you're doing your research, uh, of course you're studying for an outcome. How does that lead uh, parents, uh, educators, um, psychologists uh, to then, uh, if you will, craft a message to those children or or to children, whether they're taught this uh, in a classroom or a religious setting or whatever. How does it help professionals craft a message that is something that they can understand and believe and and practice? Well, I I think that 
knowing what kids are thinking about is the first step to knowing how to talk to kids about these issues. And what we find really is a consistent theme in all of our work is kids are much more knowledgeable about social inequalities and biases than parents often think. So for example, relating to that Muslim stereotype one, we know that kids in elementary school um, endorse the same stereotypes many adults do that um, Muslims from the Middle East are anti-American and violent and that women that are wearing hijabs are oppressed. Um, so by elementary school, kids are endorsing that as a stereotype. But yet if we ask them, do you know what it means to be Muslim? Do you know what the word Muslim means? We find that there's a real mix. So a lot of kids think it means muscular, right? Because the word sounds kind of similar. But what we find is if kids know anything about what the word Muslim really means, it's a religion or a culture or anything vaguely related to what it really means, then their stereotypes are much, much lower. Um, they're more likely to say that people can be Muslim and American, for example. They recognize that there are American Muslims. And so what we learn from those types of studies is that any little bit of knowledge about a group actually reduces their biases towards that group. So it's like this really, I think, counterintuitive finding that kids have elaborate stereotypes about a group they don't even have any factual knowledge of. So what that says for teachers and for parents is to talk about what are these groups? What's it mean? Um, talk about, we see these stereotypes in media all the time, but what's it really mean? Um, and so to have these more explicit conversations so kids get kind of knowledge and not just picking up these subtle messages from media images that they that parents might not even be aware that kids were um, kind of absorbing. I mentioned blackface because mm -hmm. that's something that just sort of came out of the blue. Mm -hmm. It was not on anyone's radar at the time. Um, was it a, a positive teachable, teachable moment for all of us, uh, but, but certainly for children? I think all of these times are really good teachable moments because it's an, it's an easy way to have a conversation about why is it wrong? Because we know really clearly from research, the only way to reduce biases are to have explicit conversations about them. To say, I noticed that this is going on. Why do you think that's wrong? What do you think about it? Let's have a conversation about it. Just trying to live in an unbiased way and hope kids model that doesn't work. <laughs> um, there's way too many stereotyped messages coming at kids that just hoping they absorb your unbiased attitudes isn't effective. So the more times you can have conversations about, why do you think that, why do you think people are bothered by that um, is really important. It's an easy conversation just to have in the car driving somewhere. You know, that's a good place to have these types of um, complex conversations that you might feel uncomfortable having, um, but can say, why is it, you know, why is it hurtful to pretend to be a different race than you are or to put on someone's skin color like a costume um, and to have conversations about things like systematic racism right to understand what's the history of the u.s and why are some groups bothered by this kind of what what's our history look like and how does that reflect the ways in which you see bias still today those are complex ideas and they're not going to be solved in one conversation about racism we're just coming off of um, the, the celebration, I put those in, in quotation marks, of, of Black History Month, and um, it, it, it seems to have taken on um, a, a new 
sort of thought process that that uh, because race is so much in the news today uh, when Black History Month began maybe it race should have been in the news at that time but but it was more of a of a celebration of something mm-hmm. that we were we were um, there, there were songs and poetry and essays and things like that what you just said though this is a good time to have a conversation about race and maybe not in, in a celebratory way, but but a historical uh, mm-hmm. avenue to let uh, young children know of uh, systematic racism. Is that systematic racism, um, uh, probably that term has been around for eons, mm-hmm. but I don't think we heard it in mainstream conversations and media as much as we do today. So this is a good time to have conversations about race. Yeah, I mean, I think the celebratory part is great, um, but we know that just pointing out famous a famous black inventor doesn't do much for kids, right? Because then it presumes that here's this one or two people that were important, and that's really the only story that we have, and that that's great. That you know, but that should have been integrated all year long, right? So we, partly we need to redo our history books and our social studies books and incorporate Black history into all of history because that's part of American history. Um, and so I think Black History Month is a chance to talk about the more complicated issues. Really, I think it's all year long we should talk about the more complicated issues because they're complicated. Um, but thinking about, you know, when kids often, their assumption is that we had the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King said, I have a dream speech, and then racism went away. Um, and now everyone gets along well. And so that's clearly not our racial history, right? And so, but that's what's comfortable and that's what's often taught during Black History Month is we had slavery, that was bad. We had Martin Luther King, he was good, now everything's better. Um, And so I think the idea is to talk about, we had slavery for centuries and it wasn't that long ago. And what happened afterwards? And how did that affect how one group treats another group? Um, And what's that look like now? And so I think those are complicated ideas for kids. They're complicated ideas for adults. Um, but so when these news events come out, and then things like Black History Month, when it's in the in the news, talk about, well, why do we not have um, as many famous black scientists, for example? Why do you think that is? Were kids allowed to go to the same schools? Um, well, what did that mean? What about going to college? Do you think kids might ever have gotten messages that they weren't as smart? What do you think that means? So having those ideas about talking about generational change and how one group was really excluded from equal opportunities, um, that's a more meaningful conversation. It's not pleasant. I mean, it's not pleasant for whites often to have those conversations, um, but white parents are the ones that need to be having those conversations. Um, And to talk about what is racial privilege um, and how does that work? And um, I think that's where we grapple. So it's easy to say, here's you know Eli Whitney and he invited him to the cotton gin. Um, it's harder to talk about what's it look like now? Because particularly if you're white, um, I think it's unpleasant to think that you might be given certain privileges that African-Americans aren't. Um, it's, I think it's more unpleasant for us to talk about, to think about, and to kind of deal with the guilt that comes with some unearned status. 
but that's where we need to be. That's where the conversations need to be. And yeah. how, how um, uh, in, in your study, in your research, um, the issue of um, of gender identity and and not only gender identity uh, when it comes to um, the young people who are who are struggling with uh, LGBTQT, uh, uh, all of the uh, the letters, um, but Someone um, had suggested that uh, I go see uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's On the Basis of Sex, mm-hmm. and, and we did go see. And, and this person who suggested it had taken their daughter, who is in junior high school. And I immediately saw that I need to take my grandchildren, uh, who are 8, 10, and, and 13, um, because there are some positive movies uh, that, that don't uh, exacerbate or, or uh, I mean, they're, they're factual, uh, not as a documentary, but, but pretty darn clear. And I, I saw, I, I could not believe that I was sitting there looking at just a few years ago, 1970, when women were treated the way they were and today are still being treated <laughs> that way uh, too. So, uh, what about just just with with male female relationships mm-hmm. before we get into gender mm-hmm. identity per se, mm-hmm. and, and uh, again, um, what what a struggle it is for all of us to to realize where we were, and we really haven't come that far. We haven't. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting to think about the ways in which we've made progress and the ways in which we haven't. Um, so I, mean, I think one interesting issue is how we see it in politics. So that's been what kids, I think, have noticed a lot lately is that a lot more women have been elected to the House of Representatives than ever before. Um, but at the same time, they're still in the minority. Hmm. Um, and at the same time, how do people have conversations about women leaders? And so even when they become leaders, what do we criticize them for? And what do we talk about? Um, Do we talk about how they're not very likable? So if they're really smart, they can't be really likable. So that's one of the issues that we have with female politicians is that you can either be um, warm warm or competent. You can't be both. (laughs) Um, And so it's this interesting idea of, yeah, we've made progress. See, there's a lot more women that now... um, in political positions of political power, but yet do we think of them in the same way that we think of men? Do we allow them to express themselves in the same way we allow men to express themselves? Um, do we talk about what they look like a lot more than we talk about what men look like? Um, and, and are they going to be investigated or uh, is somebody going to look into their background more than they would uh, a male candidate? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and also just dismissed. Right, so you see that, particularly if they're younger, they just really are dismissed as kind of irrelevant or um, trivial, trivialized. Um, Right, they're either, so against that warmth or competence, they're either, um, they might be liked, but they're perceived as not knowing much um, and being naive, or they might be perceived as smart, but either corrupt or um, just unlikable. Uh, one one of the uh, points that you um, have on your website uh, that, that you researched, uh, and, and they're they're really divided up into four, but how children understand social inequality and and, and politics. Mm-hmm. So, h- how do they understand it, and 
and, and what is the most positive way that we, I guess I'm looking for a positive outcome in all of these <laughs> discussions. And I know that's not realistic, uh, uh, that, that everybody can, uh, can be absorbed in the humanities, for example, and, and be humane and be human to one another. But I know that's not uh, the, the, the real world. So in social equality and politics, what does your research tell you? Well, I mean, what it tells us, you know, kind of like I said earlier, is that kids are really paying attention. Mm. Um, so, you know, we did a study looking at kids' attitudes before the 2016 election and then after the 2016 election um, to see what were they paying attention to, what kind of messages were they taking from all the coverage that was around. Um, and we know that kids, for example, were really paying attention to messages about the wall. It was this very, I think, both literally and metaphorically concrete idea um, that kids really latched onto. And I do think that kids, even though all of our research shows kids express a lot of biases and stereotypes early, um, they also do look for the humanity in other people. And so I think the all of very overwhelmingly, kids thought that things like the wall were really negative because it's keeping one group out, it's treating one group more negatively than another group. And so I think the good news in all of that is kids do naturally want to see the humanity in others. And that's a much easier conversation to have, right? I think you have to talk about the negative stuff with them too. But the other side is, how might we be similar to this other group? Um, and so thinking about how do we have commonalities with other people? So it's this kind of in research, we call it a common in-group identity. So figure out what's our common group, right? So um, what do we have in common with people that might be immigrating to the US? You know, parents that come with their kids, they, you know, everybody wants their kids to go to really good schools. Everyone wants their kids to feel safe. Everyone wants their kids to have food, right? We all have that in common, no matter where we live and where we come from. So these kind of political debates often give you a chance to talk about what is our common humanity and how are people more similar than they are different. Um, and that's really across whether it be Republicans or Democrats or people coming over from, a Mex you know, from Mexico into the U.S. We all have the same basic goals, right? We want to have healthy, happy families. Um, and so that is a nice way to balance some of the more negative conversations that also are necessary. Does it trouble you or should it trouble all of us that the haves and have-nots and the uh, we hear r reports of the great divide that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer and um, that there seems to be a, a, a difficult place in the middle there. Mm -hmm. um, and from my understanding that's not going to change. Mm -hmm. I mean, it seems to be getting worse. Um, no, it seems to be getting worse. I mean, one of the other parts of my research we look at is how discrimination impacts kids. And so we've done studies looking at Latino immigrant kids, for example, in Fayette County in elementary school, and look at their experiences with discrimination at school. And what we see is that they experience it from parents and teachers, I'm sorry, from uh, teachers and peers. And some of it's really subtle, some of it's less subtle. The comments they get from peers is less subtle. And we see though that teachers have a really important um, opportunity with kids. So teachers who value diversity and think diversity enriches the classroom, 
those kids are experiencing less discrimination in the classroom. They're saying their peers treat them more fairly. And then what's great is you see kids are actually doing better academically. So, you know, we have immigrant kids. If they're in a classroom with where their, their teacher is saying, I like diversity, I think it makes the place more interesting. Those kids are having more positive experiences, and we find that they're doing better academically over time, over and above what the teacher's teaching them in math and reading. They're doing better academically because they feel like they belong more at their school. They feel like, yes, diversity is valued, I belong here, and they're doing better academically. So the flip side of that then is that when kids are in spaces where diversity is not valued, they're experiencing negative comments from their peers. They're doing worse academically. They're disengaging. They're opting for lower level classes by the time they get into middle school. They're more likely, we know from other research, to drop out of high school, for example. And so here's this example of you have kids that are in a really vulnerable situation. And um, those that are facing discrimination and are facing kind of bias are more and more likely to face bias in the future because their academic trajectories are worse. Whereas we have an opportunity to help them be more part of the haves and not the have nots. Um, but it's that really kind of vulnerable age where we can make it, we can change the trajectory, but often it's the kids that don't have much, um, that are in worse, more poor schools, mm -hmm. have fewer resources, their parents have fewer resources to help them. Um, and they're more likely to have um, worse outcomes over time. It could be in the in rural areas instead mm -hmm. of urban settings. Definitely. Uh -huh. um, yeah, it really hits every kind of every neighborhood there is. There's haves and have-nots. Mm -hmm. Do, do you, if if I'm correct about the uh, some of the information that that I read, uh, do you think it would surprise people to know that there are 1.3 million children uh, in black immigrant families in the United States? and that one in four U.S. children under the age of 18 is the child of an immigrant? Are, are those? That's, yeah. Um, th those are, uh, that's, that's, a, that's a huge number. <laughs> it, it is a huge number. Um, I think that, I think that there's a lot more diversity in the country than people realize, maybe than some people realize. You know, the latest stats from Fayette County Public Schools, for example, is, um, white kids in Fayette County Public Schools now constitute less than 50% of the school population, um, which I don't think is the experience you necessarily feel walking around Lexington. If you're in kind of just walking around downtown Lexington, you know, out on a Friday night, you don't realize that it's much more actually diverse, particularly among children. And this is in Kentucky that's not a particularly no. diverse state, no, and yet that's still not. what our numbers are. Um, so I think there is a lot of diversity here a lot of it is immigrant kids um, but i think also people often assume because it's what the dialogue is is that it's mexican immigrants flooding the u.s um, that's not what the data supports um, it's a lot what we have in lexington for example because of just certain um, immigrant groups coming to work on horse farms for example there's certain pockets of immigrant populations all around the country um, but it's not this big Mexican migration coming over. Um, but we do have a lot of diverse immigrants, whether it be from lots of Asian countries, Latin American countries, European countries. And so the more we can embrace that and think about how that enriches the US, um, we've always had a long, really rich immigration history in the US. 
Um, we don't think about it now much as we enjoy our pizza and spaghetti and tacos. Um, but it's part of what makes us great. Um, and it's not, you know, the immigrant population of kids <laughs> is um, much bigger than people realize. And so I think we have to figure out how we can help those kids um, be as academically successful and as psychologically healthy and as socially accepted as possible because that's who Americans are now. Um, and we can either choose to embrace it or keep the have-nots kind of at the bottom of the ladder. Do you enjoy your work? Very much so. <laughs> I mean, we do kind of depressing topics, um, but I think we try to always focus on what the end goal is. And the end goal? Is that kids are all allowed to grow up the best way they can, right? And that you're treated fairly regardless of the group that you're born into. Um, and that everyone's allowed to reach their potential. It's really that simple. Um, it's not that hard to achieve. We just all kind of need to get on the same page and also just talk more about it and be more comfortable talking about inequalities. Do you wish sometimes you could also do the same thing for adults? <laughs> yes. I often say, though, this is why I like being a developmental psychologist and not one that deals with adults because I think it's much easier to think about it with kids. For one, it's a more um, they're more open to change. Um, and also we know that kids aren't to blame, right? Kids are seven-year-olds. They're just absorbing the other stuff. So it's much easier and I think a more optimistic place to um, to think, you know, to kind of navigate than to think about trying to change someone, a 47-year-old's ideas. We're pretty set in stone, but kids I have a little bit more optimism for. Uh, Dr. Brown, uh, it's been good to have you here. You're a professor of psychology uh, at the University of Kentucky and a director of the Center for Equality and Social Justice. Uh, an interesting conversation. We'll have to have you back at some uh, other uh, moment in time when uh, you probably always have something uh, pretty fascinating and interesting research-based uh, uh, to back you up and to talk about. Right. Yeah, it seems to always be relevant. Thank you. Thanks. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we've been telling Kentucky's stories for 46 years. The podcast was produced and edited by Morgan Lowe. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities. <laughs>